Let's pray together. Father God, you established an opportunity for us to come into your presence in a more sacred manner. And I pray that this morning you would help us to do exactly that. So we submit ourselves to where you're going to lead us right now in Christ's name. Amen. Over the years, I've had uh, several people ask me to do a ceremony for them in which they renew their wedding vows. Now they're married. It's not as if they're getting married again. They're already married. But because they want to express their love for one another and do it publicly, they've asked me to do a ceremony where they can renew their wedding vows. And it's been a great experience to be able to do that. And they gather their family, they gather their friends, and in a sense, reaffirm their love for one another and that they're going to continue to love one another. Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that the communion table is an opportunity for us to renew our wedding vows to Jesus Christ. He doesn't renew his because his vows stand forever, okay? He never has to renew his vows because they are, his, his vow is permanent. But we tend to forget. We tend to wander away from, from the Lord. We tend to fall into sin. We tend to just become blasé about our salvation. And Jesus instituted a time when we could come back together again, and the Lord's table is loaded with all kinds of imagery, all kinds of pictures. One that I want us just to focus on today has to do with that aspect, that when we come to the Lord's table, we're coming as the bride of Christ. And as the bride of Christ, we're coming to reaffirm our vow to Him, to reaffirm our walk with Him. It's not that we have to get saved again. Once you're saved, I believe you're always a child of God. But there's a time when God has instituted for us to come back and revisit what was done to save us and then refresh our commitment to the Lord Jesus in that setting. So in order for us to get there, we want to talk about what a covenant means. Now, many of you may have said words similar to this. I groom, take you bride to be my wedded wife. Remember saying some of that, something like that? All right, so let me ask you just a question for you to ponder. At what moment in a wedding ceremony, sorry, no, at one moment on the wedding day are a man and women considered married in God's eyes? I'm going to know. They are. At what moment on their wedding day does God declare a man and a woman to be married? So wait with me. Is it during the ceremony? Is it during when the pastor declares them to husband and wife? Is it in the honeymoon suite? At what point, from God's perspective, are they husband and wife? The answer is at the moment they state their vows to one another. It is the vows, it is the covenant they make with one another that makes the wedding bed holy. And that's why, if you ever listen, when I do a wedding, I never say, I declare you to be husband and wife. <laughs> I don't. The state doesn't declare them to be husband and wife. When a couple exchange their vows with one another before God, they are making the covenant that turns them into a married couple. And so you'll hear me say, on the basis of your vows, God declares you to be husband and wife. 
All right, so that kind of adds an element of sanctity to marriage because it is God who is there listening to all of this. Sorry, my computer, for some reason, isn't working, so I've got to live with this thing. Okay, so many of us go through something like this where we say, I groom, take you bride to be my wedded wife, to heaven to hold from this day forward in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, to love and to cherish, and forsaking all others, I shall keep myself only for you for as long as we both shall live. Before God and these witnesses, I pledge to you my love. When, when you do that in a wedding ceremony, you may think you're making a contract. You're not. You're making a covenant. See, a contract is something you can back out of. A covenant, you can't. In fact, we make contracts with one another because we don't trust one another. Think about it. The reason we make contracts is because I don't believe you're going to keep your word. So when you're in a, in a wedding ceremony, if you're saying your vows with contract in mind, you're basically saying something like this, although you wouldn't, wouldn't own up to it, but you're saying something like, I will love you and remain faithful to you as long as you don't change. Or in the case of women, in the case, I will stay faithful to you if you change and become the man I'm going to make you become. <laughs> I will love you and remain faithful to you as long as you continue to make me happy. And you, there, you, it is astounding how many marriages end because people say, I'm no longer happy. I'm no longer happy in this relationship, therefore I want out. I just want to go. I will love you and remain faithful to you as long as you agree to do what I want you to do. As long as I'm the one in the driver's seat and you submit to me, I will stay faithful. There's many other ways. But see, one of the difficulties is we think of a wedding ceremony as a time when we're making a contract with one another. We're not. It's a covenant. A covenant is way more binding. A contract says, I will love you and remain faithful to you as long as you. A covenant says, I will love you with a love that will never let go. That's what a covenant is is all about. Now, in Old Testament times, sorry, go back here. In ancient Near Eastern times, when they made a covenant, it was called cutting a covenant. And it was called cutting a covenant because they literally cut an animal in half. And so when two people were going to make a covenant with one another, they would take a bull, say, and they would cut it lengthwise and lay it out on the ground. Then they would join arms and they would walk through between the pieces of that dead animal. And on the other side, they would turn around and say something basically that says, when that animal comes back together again and lives, we will consider our covenant to have ended. And of course, covenants, that animal wouldn't. So that was part of the picture. Now, when they made covenants, two people would walk through. But there was a covenant that started the whole process of our salvation where God made a covenant with Abraham. And what God did was he had Abraham tuck, cut the animals in half and lay them down. And then God alone walked through between the halves. In other words, the covenant from God is a one-way street. He basically says, this is what I want to do for you. I want you to be my people and I will be your God. And the covenant comes from him. The only thing we can do is accept him. We can only say, I do, and accept his covenant. Okay, you with me there? 
So, when Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, lifted the cup and he said this, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. He was telling us that when we come to this table, we're remembering the fact that he has made a covenant with us that will last forever. Now, in order for us to appreciate the incredible gift of this covenant, we have to go back in a little bit in time. There was a time when God promised that this new covenant would come into existence. And he promised it through the prophet Jeremiah. Now, here's what had happened. The children of Israel were brought into a covenant with God, which was called the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? And God said to them, I will be your God. I will bless you. I will keep you safe. I will fill your land with, with milk and honey. You will have everything from me. I will be your God and I will protect you and I will provide for you. He said, the only thing you have to do to enjoy all that I want to give you is you have to obey my laws. The book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy spell out God's civil and ceremonial and moral laws. And he said, as long as you obey my laws, you will stay within the safety of my, uh, of my love, and I will prosper you. Did they keep God's laws? Did any nation keep God's laws? Could any nation have kept all of God's laws? The answer is no, not at all. What God was doing with the Mosaic Covenant was he was sort of giving us the, the ad, well, not sort of, he was giving us the advance notice that there is no way that we as human beings can earn our place in his kingdom. It has to come from him. But the children of Israel kept rebelling, kept rebelling, kept rebelling. And so they split the country in two, north and south split. And then the countries in the north were taken into a captivity in Assyria. In the, was it Assyria then Babylon? Yes. Assyria. And then the last two tribes were taken into captivity in Babylon. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel, both of them, during this period of time, 600 years before Christ, 650, 650 years before Christ, both of them described the fact that God was going to one day regather his people. But when he regathered them, he'd regather them in preparation for what he was going to call the new covenant. So here's what God said to Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Notice Israel and Judah is going to bring them back together again as his people. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. The husband concept is found throughout Scripture. And the Bible calls us the bride of Christ. And our wedding will be consummated when he returns. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Ezekiel adds the fact that this new covenant, God is not only going to take the law and take it off of stones and parchment, but write it into our souls. And that the Spirit of God would come inside of us and would replace our heart of stone with a flesh, a heart of flesh. And that he would cause us to live again. And it will be written on our inner being. Are you aware of the fact that every time you hear a sermon, every time you open the Bible, every time you read something from God's word, that the Spirit of God is writing his law into your inner being? He's then telling you about himself. He's teaching you how to walk with him, how to live with him. And so <laughs> you're taking notes, I notice. <laughs> Think about that. 
that whenever you're encountering God's word, the Spirit of God is inscribing it, writing it inside, so that we have this internal message that's being taught to us. I've watched people over the years, after they become believers, suddenly begin to change things in their lives. Nobody's told them to change. It's because the Spirit of God is teaching. The Spirit of God is working and informing them internally. And he says, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. That's not saying we shouldn't teach each other. What he's saying is that people were going to come, to, when this new covenant comes, people are going to know me internally. So if I were to ask you, why do you believe in Jesus? And you'd go, well, because of this and this and this and this. The truth is, when I ask you, why do you believe in Jesus? Most of us, if we're honest, would say, I believe. Say, I know, but why do you believe? It's kind of like, I don't know. I believe. Because what God does is he plants down in the core of our beings that knowledge of himself. And it's a knowledge that seeps into our beings so that we ultimately, when we say, why do you believe in Jesus Christ? Most of us can't come up with multiple arguments. Most of us can simply make that statement that I believe. And a teaching moment has just arrived. Hi, guys. We've invited them to come to the front of the church as soon as they're through helping out with our Sunday school. And I want them to come to the front so that they know they're welcome and wonderful guests. And they're allowed to come in late. You are not. If you are not a teenager and you arrive here late, sit at the back. Do not come up front and interrupt Raymond's train of thought. So this to me is wonderful to have these guys join us here. So what we're talking about is we're talking about the fact that God said, I'm going to bring you into a relationship with me that is like a marriage. No, that is a marriage. And I'm going to make a covenant with you. And a covenant is one way. I will always keep my covenant. And I will be able to do it, he says, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So Jeremiah and Ezekiel promised that there would be a day when the new covenant would come into existence. On the last week of Jesus' ministry here on earth, he and his disciples gathered in an upper room. And as they gathered in the upper room, they were eating together a meal that God required the entire nation to eat once a year, and that was the Passover meal. And during the Passover meal, they remembered the fact that in order to release them from Egypt, God had sent the angel of death through the land in order to get the Pharaoh to finally let go of his people. But in order to make sure that the angel of death did not touch any of his people, his people were told to take a lamb, cut its throat, capture the blood, pour the blood at the base of the door, and then paint the blood over the door frame. And what it taught them was just to reinforce what was there in all the sacrificial systems that God said, in order to bring you into relationship with me, your sins must be punished. There must be blood. There must be a death. Someone has to pay the price for your sins. And he would use the animals as a substitute. That little lamb died as a substitute for his people. 
And then he passed over. And then he required the nation that once a year they would eat this meal again to remember what he had done to release them from Egypt. So it was during that meal, as they were eating the Passover meal, that Jesus enacted the new covenant. God had promised that it would come. During this meal, Jesus said, it is now here. We read, while they were eating, Jesus took bread gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Now, the bread that he took was unleavened bread. It was bread that was made without yeast. And it was made without yeast because they had to make that bread and they had to hit the road running the next day. There was no time for the bread to rise. But yeast was always used as an example of sin. And so when he says, This is my body which is for you, he's taking a piece of unleavened bread that's got no sin in it, and he's using it as a symbol of what he is, what he is doing. Okay? Now, at that moment, they didn't go, ah, it's his body. He's holding his body in his hand and he's going to tear his body in pieces and make us eat bits of his body. They understood it's a symbol. Okay? It doesn't really become his body. I have a collection of American flags. I have one, I don't want to take time, but I've got one here that flew over uh, Fallujah in Iraq during the Iraq war. And one of our members sent that to us. I'm keeping it safe for us. Okay, beautiful. Years ago, I worked at a bank in Kansas City. I managed a little branch. And the manager said, would you please go down into the basement and clean it? There's all kinds of stuff accumulating down there that shouldn't be in our vault. So would you clean up the vault? So when I went down there, I found a flag on one of the, the shelves. And so I took the flag and took it upstairs and said, what should I do with it? Now, I want you guys to tell me, what is there about this flag that is interesting? What? Say it again loud. It's a 48-star flag. Isn't that cool? I have one. You can't have it. That's a 48-star flag. And I took it upstairs and showed it to him, and he said, it's a 48-star flag. And I went cool, what should I do with it? He said, I don't know, dispose of it. I said, can I keep it? He said, yeah, so I still have my 48-star flag. Now, the flag represents America, doesn't it? I mean, we look at the flag, and there's so much that is loaded into it. There's all kinds of, of, of patriotic joy attached to the American flag. But it's not America. It represents America. And when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we're not eating and drinking the body of Christ. The Bible is emphatic that Jesus died once for all. He is not re-sacrificed every time we come to the table. He died once for all, and it was done. He was buried, and he rose again from the grave. And so when we eat this bread and we drink this cup, it's bread, and it's grape juice. It's bread and wine. It doesn't change in any sense at all. However... The Corinthian church, we'll see in just a moment, was a church that began to treat the Lord's table disrespectfully. They would, it was, they, they would enjoy it as part of a meal. And what happened was that the rich people would come and stuff themselves while the poor people had nothing to eat. And so you had a church where people were sitting down and they were supposed to be one. They were supposed to be loving and caring for one another. But instead, the rich people would get drunk and eat and the poor people had nothing to eat. And Paul was furious with that church. 
This is a time when we come together to remember that we are a communion. We are one in Christ. And Paul was so furious that he rebuked that church. And he told them, and this is kind of scary, that some of them had fallen ill because of the way they were disrespecting other believers. And some of them had died as a result of them disrespecting people at the Lord's table. Which shows us that when we come here, there is something sacred happening. There's something here when we gather together that is not just sort of like somebody said, well, could we just use beer and crackers? Like, eh. The minute you do that, there's disrespect in your brain. You know, the, the moment you think like that, it's like, no, 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 no. Wait, you're not thinking. What makes the table sacred is that Jesus is here. Where two or three are gathered in my name, he said, there I am in the midst of them. And what makes it sacred is Jesus is in this room by his spirit, and we come to the table as his body. Now, understand this. We're called the body of Christ. That's not just a sort of a sweet little idea. That's an ontological reality. Aren't you glad to know that? <laughs> Ontology is the science that, that studies what really exists. And when we're called the body of Christ, it is an ontological statement. We are the body of Christ. When we come into this room to worship, whenever we gather as, as believers, Jesus is here and we are his body. We are inextricably tied into him. He's the head of the body. We are the body, but we are one with Jesus Christ. And so when we come into this room, we're gathering together with Jesus as our host. And therefore, it is sacred. It's not sacred because of the bread and the wine. It's sacred because of Jesus' presence. And the reason I point that out is that throughout history... We have focused on the bread and the wine. Does it become Jesus' body? No. Does it become blood? No. Does it... And we focused on that. And that's not to be our focus. Our focus is on Jesus is present among us. And it's our opportunity to encounter and to meet with Jesus in his presence. So, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus died on the cross, his blood was poured out because blood was required for sin to be forgiven. And when his blood was poured out on the cross, our sins could be forgiven because he took the punishment for our sins. And he said, I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. That night during the, this, their ceremony, they drank four cups of wine. And based upon what God's promises were in the book of Deuteronomy, they were called the cup of grace, the cup of deliverance, the cup of redemption, and the cup of sanctification, which means completion. He drank the cup of grace with them. He drank the cup of deliverance with them. He lifted the cup of redemption as part of, this, uh, of, of, the Lord, of the, uh, um, what instituted the Lord's table, he never drank the cup of sanctification. He will drink that with us when he returns, and we go to the wedding feast of the Lamb. So in that kind of, you just, you just needed to know that, just because I think it's exciting. So why then does he require us to do this? Well, think about it. Most of the, of the significant events in our lives happen around a meal. Let me just use dating, okay? My son is in the midst of dating. I just got a text from him. <laughs> Quite literally. 
It's like, shh, don't talk about me, Dad. So my son is in the midst of dating, uh, actually, a couple of, of, of women. All right, so you meet for coffee. That's not a date. You meet and go for a hike. That's not a date. But when you meet and go to dinner, that's a date. Isn't that true? When the two of you meet and go to dinner, oh, yeah. Now this is a date. We do meals for, for, for romance. We do meals for Christmas, for Thanksgiving. A meal is a significant part of the life whenever God's people get together, wherever families come together. And so what Jesus did was he instituted a meal, a time. We should actually be doing this as part of a meal. We do do it at Thanksgiving, and next year we're going to do it as part of July 4th weekend. So, because this, this year, July 4th, sort of fell in the middle of the week. We didn't know what to do with it. Next year, it comes closer to one weekend, and so we're going to have a barbecue, and we're going to do communion as part of it, because it gives us an opportunity to put it into the context of a whole meal. But the point of the Lord's table is to give us a tactile reminder of Jesus and his covenant. It's tactile because we touch it, we taste it, we see it, we, we experience it together. And that's why the Apostle Paul gave the instructions. For I received from the Lord what I also passed unto you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Notice that statement. Do this in remembrance of me. We forget. We forget that we became children of God by the sacrifice of Jesus. We forget that He is our Lord and Savior every single day of our lives. We forget that He wants to be part of our everyday lives. We do. We just drift away from it. And so what He did is He said, I'm going to institute something that as often as you do it, it will help you to remember me, specifically my sacrifice. In the same way after supper, He took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And that's why I say that the most significant thing when we come together is to remember that we're in the presence of Jesus when we come to the table of the Lord. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's amazing. This table, like I said, it's got rich imagery, all kinds. When we come here, we're making the statement that the Lord has died, he has risen, he's present, he will come again, and he will keep his covenant to us. He will keep his marriage proposal in the end. So, what are we supposed to do with this? It's a sacred opportunity, I believe, for us to renew our obligations to him. It's not that he needs to renew his covenant, not at all, but that we take this as a moment to renew our part of the covenant. He says to us, I, Jesus, take you, put your name right there, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, to love and to cherish. And forsaking all others, I shall keep myself only for you for as long as we both shall live. Before God and these witnesses, I pledge to you my love. That's what Jesus offers in salvation. He says, what I want you to do is simply say to me, I do. And once we've said, I do, we are now the bride of Christ. And Peter says, well, in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. He will eventually bring this new world into existence. And at, when that new world is brought into existence, we will have this massive feast with him when the bride, as the bride of Christ.
But in the meantime, we don't just sit on a hill and wait. We've got work to do. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Our job is to understand, as the bride of Christ, we need to live as the bride. We need to be the, the bride so that when the world looks at us, they see the radiance of Jesus Christ in us. They see his love. They see his mercy. They see his grace. They see his forgiveness. They see his purity in the way that we're choosing to live. And so our part of, uh, of the Lord's table is to renew our commitment to him when we come here. The Apostle Paul rebuked that church in Corinth for the way they were treating it with, with this sort of indifference, but also they were insulting the body of Christ. And so he warns us, don't do that. Before you come to the table, examine yourselves, and then come and partake. Now, the significant part in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul made the statement, was that there were relationships between believers that were wrong, and that had broken down. And that is, on the first level, that's the most important level for us to look at that. If there's relationships between us and other Christians, we've got to deal with that. We've got to ask for forgiveness, and we've got to do our best to restore those relationships. But there are many other ways that we could treat this in, a, in a, a, a manner that is insulting. If we treat it just as a ritual, and it's done, then there's something wrong in that, in that process. We need to come here with the knowledge that Jesus is our host. And when we meet together with his people, we're in a sacred moment, a sacred encounter. So let's just spend a moment in prayer, preparing ourselves for the table. Let's pray together. Reflect for a moment that Jesus is our covenant maker. We don't earn a place in heaven. He took the punishment for our sins and offers us salvation, forgiveness, eternal life, his spirit, his church. He offers all of that to us. And the only requirement is we say, I do. I do take you, Jesus, to be my lawfully wedded Savior. If you've never done that, do that right now. And then take a moment for him to cleanse you. Confess any sin that you must and let it go. And Lord Jesus, we know that there's going to be a day when you return. And in a moment, we're going to be changed. In a moment, we'll be caught up to meet you in the air. And we will be your radiant bride at that moment. And so today, as we come to your table, we come with that idea that 
We want to live pure lives. We want to live holy lives. We want to be radiant now so that when people look at us as a church, when people look at us as individuals, they see the glory and the purity and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And so as we come to this table, we come to refresh, to renew our side of the covenant. And we do it in Christ's name. Amen.